Okay, well, uh, brothers, um, I forgot to turn on the recorder before I pray, but that's fine. Uh, we're going to get uh, rolling again in Job. I wanted to ask a question as we get going. Um, last week, we got into Job's friends and the way they responded to him. And if you remember, one of the things I, I started off by saying is, you're not getting the biblical theological story furthered in the book of Job. The wisdom literature is generally not furthering your understanding of the story, but it is presenting to you what it means to live um, you know, in the land, if you will, to live as God's people in his kingdom, and you're learning how to walk wisely with him. And his, Job's going through the suffering, and you remember uh, his friends come in and what is, a, what is their basic contention? If you had to take all three friends and wrap it up, what's their basic contention with what's going on with Job and his suffering? God is holy, man is not. Therefore, you sins. Confess your sins and things will get better. Okay, good. So essentially, God is holy, true. Man is a maggot, true. You, there, you know, you sinned. And, and God and his justice is, is bringing this about. In other words, they have a somewhat mechanical view of, of God with regard to um, you reap what you sow, right? So they essentially think if you're suffering, like especially if you're suffering like Job is, you must have sinned in some way. If you were being godly and repentant, you would prosper, right? That's, you guys follow that? That's, that's basically their contention. This wouldn't be happening if you were godly, if you were repentant. Um, at least God would restore you. So they contend that. They begin somewhat generally in their charges, and they move more and more specific. They, they, they get more and more um, clear that Job must be wicked. And Job responds to them. So we said there were three cycles. There's um, the three friends who each respond three times, except the last one, Zophar's third response is left off. So you have three from Eliphaz, three from Bildad, and then two from Zophar. So as they're walking through, Eliphaz gives his argument, and then Job replies. Bildad gives an argument, Job replies. Zophar gives an argument, Job replies. You have three cycles of that. Until you get to um, Job's reply after Bildad's third argument, um, Job replies, Zophar's never let back in. Narratively, a lot of people have wrestled with what's happening there. Why does Zophar's third speech get dropped? Most scholars, at least that I've read, seem to contend that you're being told poetically, because notice this is all in the form of a poem here, you're being told poetically that basically the cycle is finally broken off because um, let's just say the conversation has broken down, right? It went from being uh, a back and forth to a point at which they were just no longer, um, they were so far on other pages that the conversation just kind of came to an end. We'll put it that way. And it's, it's supposed to portray a kind of drama like, all right, Job saying, I'm done with you all. Right? You've, you've pushed it too far, um, and you won't give up. You won't relent. You're bad friends. So he goes there. Now, let me ask you guys a question. What's the judgment of the book of Job about Job? 
What's the first judgment we get in Genesis 1 and 2 about Job? He was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. And was any of this happening because of his sin? No. No, okay. What's the judgment we get about Job's friends? Look at the end really quickly. The end of Job, 40, Job 42. And then we're going to look at Job's replies kind of as a unit. Job 42, look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you and I'll accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, we'll come back to that later, but um, you guys see the general tenor of the situation. The, the, the point is not that Job never errs in what he says. That's not the point. Um, the, the point is that in the overall matter, Job's friends have gotten it wrong, and Job has gotten it right. Job has not sinned in what he said in the overall sense, and his friends have. They've just gotten God wrong. In other words, I asked you last week at the end, it's, an, it's a poor application. They were saying true things and poorly applying them, and then I asked you, is it a theological problem? And I was hoping to trap you into saying no, right? Like, if, which would have been incorrect, and it would have been fun to point out. But you didn't, you didn't. So you were smarter than I hoped you'd be. But I kept saying, theological truth, bad application. Theological truth, bad application. Theological truth, bad application. Is it a theological problem? And you said, yes. And I thought, good, you're getting it. It is a theological problem because if, if you don't properly, uh, if you don't put theology in its proper sense, in other words, if it's not properly applied, that is in fact a theological problem. They had a mechanical view of God. That's their theological problem, right? Give and he, and you get, take, you know, and you have taken from you, right? That's essentially, that's essentially this kind of mechanical view they have. Um, so Job steps in and starts to reply. Now we're going to look at um, these replies that Job gives uh, uh, under things Job believes or teaches or professes or whatever you want to call it. Um, I just picked believes. But we'll walk through these and then look at Job's final defense. Um, and that'll leave us probably at the end of the morning um, waiting to hear from Elihu and the Lord. Uh, so turn with me to Job chapter 6. We'll look at Job's first reply. And I want to start here that Job believes that death would be better than his suffering. I think, I think it's important for us to know that Job is suffering so intensely. Well, you could imagine if you lost all of your children and all of your stuff. I'm not talking about like, you know, um, I had a rough week. I'm like Job. No, no, no. Like, you know, I, I'm talking about like all your kids are dead. Your house has been knocked down. All your stuff is gone. 
all your, your, your body, body has got sores all over it, so you're scraping it with pottery. Um, people mock you and hiss at you. Uh, you know, people you used to give to, even, mock at you and hiss at you. Your own wife doesn't want to be near you because your breath stinks so badly. That actually comes up in Job, just so you know. It's like, she doesn't like my breath anymore. So, like, it's just, if you think about this poor brother, he's in a bad way, in a really bad way. He's just like, I'd just rather die, right? Death would be better than this. So let's look at some of that. Job 6, 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Um, Job thinks if all of his vexation, all of his suffering were weighed, what would it be? How does he compare it? Heavier than the sand of the seashores. So you guys think about how heavy sand is. You ever bagged sand and carried it around, right? It's heavy. Um, heavier than the sand of the seashores, like if you think about that. He's just saying, I'm, I'm just, it's just crushing. It's too much. Then he goes on to say, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. So let me, uh, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Let me ask a question. At the end of the day, who does Job think the suffering has come from? It's come from the Lord, he believes it's come from the hand of the Lord. It's interesting, he uses this word. I, I, I'm going to point this out just to remind you guys. I said Job uses the word El Shaddai, which we translate Almighty, more than all the rest of the Old Testament to put together, just in the book of Job. El Shaddai is the word that is used of God among the patriarchs. El Shaddai, Genesis 17.1, I'm God Almighty. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the general way they were used to referring to him. One of the reasons we put this, la- this book in the patriarchal period is because of the use of language. It's very similar to the patriarchal period. Um, just as a total side note, because I've been doing this intensive study on the separation of waters, which I'm not talking about this Sunday, but next Sunday, um, and, and, the, and the mountains that seem to come out of that. El Shaddai also... Um, means, and, and is well known among scholars to mean God of the mountain. Interestingly enough, we say almighty God, and the point of God of the mountain is that's where God dwells, right? If you want to go meet with God, where do you always do it? It's always done on a mountain. Um, so the God, the God who is almighty, you, you dwell with him there. Um, anyway, but he's, he's, uh, he's suffering to the point of rather being dead, and he is um, he is saying this is coming from the Lord. Look at verse 8 and 9. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. What does he want the Lord to do? And him. Lord, I just, here's his request. You know, I mean, it's bad when you're going to the Lord in prayer, asking him just to take you down. All right. here's my request. This isn't a guy who's like, I'm praying the Lord will heal the sores of my body 
and give me back you know, all my kids, right? You know, he's just saying, because you know, he knows that's not coming. So he's just like, just, just kill me. It's enough. All right, chapter seven. Has not man had a hard service on earth? Chapter seven, verse one. And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? If you know, the hired hand is one who's just working laboriously, it's not his own property, if you will. Like a slave who longs for the shadow. Do you guys know what a slave is who longs for the shadow? What, is, what do they mean by that? What, why, why would a slave long for a shadow? What's that? Toward the end of the day, there's a cooling that happens, um, etc. And the hired hand who looks for his wages. You, you know, you, if you're an employer which I have been an employer, and some of you have been, you know what a hired hand looking for their wages is like. They're just miserable at work. They're, just, they're clock watchers. They can't wait to clock out and get their check. They're not actually enjoying work at all. That may be some of you, so if that's you, repent and move on. But, um, but we, we, can, you know, we can see what this is like. This person is miserable. I, just, I want it to be over. That's what a hired hand does, waiting for his wages. I just, you used to pay the people daily. I just want the clock to click. I want it to be over. That's what he's saying. All right. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Verse three. So I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. You guys understand that. Just can't sleep. He's just tossing and turning. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. If you think about a skin disease where your skin is hardening and then breaking out and worms and dirt are getting into it. You're so infected and nasty at that point. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Are you, are you guys picking up where Job's at at this point in life? Um, go, go down to verse 16. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. Here he is essentially asking God to leave him alone. Look at verse 19. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? In other words, uh, it's like I'm so parched in my suffering, I don't even have a chance to swallow my spit. You just are, he's telling God, you're relentless. Just leave me alone. I'm just take me out. I'm, I'm just done. I can't take it any longer. Um, this is his prayer. Look at chapter 10. We'll look at it again a little bit more. Chapter 10, verse 18. There's, I mean, well, look at, look at verse 1 first just so you can see it right at the very beginning. I loathe my life. You, you get it? Okay, so... Um, he, he, he wants to speak in the bitterness of his soul, he goes on to say. But look at verse 18. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Remember, he asked that initially Why, in chapter 3. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I have died before any eye had seen me, as, as were, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Right? I mean, I just wish I was stillborn. That's what he's saying. I would have preferred not to have lived. Um, to have to see this kind of suffering. So Job believes his death would be better than than his suffering. 
Uh, I, I don't know if you guys know that Christians do get there. They can get in t- intense enough suffering that they would rather, they would rather just die and go home and be with the Lord than continue suffering. Right? They do. Um, it's just too intense. They don't understand the point of it. They don't know what the Lord's doing. They have no answer, right, for what the Lord's doing. Is he right that this is coming at the hand of the Lord? Yes. Does he know why? No. Right? Um, he has no idea why. He, he just wants it to end. So, and, you know, listen, at this point, it's probably somewhat irredeemable. When all of your friends have turned against you, that's in Job's mind anyway, um, in the sense of in this life it's irredeemable. We'll deal with that a little bit. But when all your friends have turned against you, all your children are dead, you've lost everything financially, you're just destitute, your body is falling apart, you know, you're gross to everybody around you where you're a byword or a hiss as people walk by. At that point, you're like, (laughs) just take me home. Like, there's nothing left for me here right? Um, so that's where he's at. All right, let's look at the next sort of belief Job has. Job believes the case for his integrity must be presented before the Lord. Um, and it shouldn't say not believing is will happen, not believing it will happen. In other words, I need to present my, the case for my integrity before the Lord. I need to do it. I just don't believe it'll happen. In other words, he doesn't think he's ever going to get to... Um, Make his case, but he thinks he should be able to make his case. He wants to make his case. And the, and the reason is he wants to demonstrate to his friends, I have integrity. This didn't happen to me because of my sin. That's the case he wants to make before the Lord. He wants people around him to know, um, I'm not guilty of some kind of wickedness that brought this about. Because that's essentially the charge. You must have taken advantage of your employees. You must have not cared about the widow or the orphan. You must have been selfish in some way, wicked in some way, right? That's the charge coming against him. And he's like, I just, I just wish I could stand before the Lord and be vindicated. When Job wants vindication before the Lord, I, I don't want you to misunderstand. Job does not mean I want to stand before the Lord and have the Lord pronounce, I'm perfectly holy. That's not what he's contending. He knows that's not the case. He'll say it's not the case. What he's contending is, in this situation, this has not been brought, about, uh, brought to me because of my sin. That's, that's what he's saying. I'm not going through this because of some sin I committed. I don't deserve this. Job does not deny that in some sense, everybody deserves God's justice. He never denies that. Or that everybody's a sinner. Job denies that this particular suffering has anything to do with his sin. You guys understand the distinction there? Uh, and Job's right about that. He just doesn't know exactly why it's happening in light of that. So let's talk about his, the case for his integrity. Look at 6.10. You'll see some of these. Job 6.10. Now, this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Um, if he could die, it would be his comfort. And, and, and he goes on to say, I, I've never denied God's words. Hear that? I, in other words, I've not denied him. What does it mean to be blameless? Sometimes we hear this charge. Job's essentially saying, I'm blameless. 
What does it mean to be blameless? Perhaps we need to spend a moment there before we continue forward hearing Job talk about his blamelessness. Um, we, we hear an elder is supposed to be blameless, as is a deacon, by the way. They're supposed to be blameless. And so we're supposed to pick men from the congregation who are blameless men, right? And most people see the list. I, I meet with a group of guys, say, who would like to be an elder or deacon? I go over the list, and most of the guys go, ah, I'm not blameless, right? Okay, I don't yell at my wife or kids. Like, I'm not, I don't have an anger, temper problem. I don't have a drinking problem. I never, I never overindulge in alcohol. I don't have a greed problem. I don't live for money, um, Money is useful, but my life, it's not, that's what my life's about. It's about the Lord, and I, if I don't have the money, that's fine. I don't, you know, I, 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 I don't have a sort of, I'm not quick to anger with other people. I'm generally patient, generally kind, you know, these kinds of things. You can go through it and go, yeah, then said, um, must be above reproach or blameless. It's another way to bring that, and then, oh, whoop. <laughs> Not me, right? So we hear blameless. What do we think it means? We think it means without sin. Like that, there's nothing we could find in you that's sinful. Not true. Not true. Blameless or above reproach is talking about the notion of being, in this sense that Job's using it. That, listen, words can be used in different senses. But in the sense that Job's using it, and in the sense that Paul's using it for elders is essentially a way of saying without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. This is a person who lives um, consistently. Do you guys follow me on that? So Job's, Job's point is, when he says, I've not denied the words of the Holy One, his point isn't, I've never sinned, or I've never said anything errant. His point is, um, I've always been one when the word to, to believe the word, and when I get corrected by the word, I receive the correction. You guys understand the distinction there? Okay? Like, um, I can say that my doctrine throughout my life has been without hypocrisy. Blameless. Yet, I would also tell you that my doctrine throughout my life has changed because I've recognized prior error. That's a maturing and, and, and a hearing, being confronted with the word and recognizing, oh, I was kind of off on that. That needs a change. That doesn't mean I ever denied the word before. It means I was ignorant. You guys understand the distinction? Okay, so there's, there is, uh, you can look at Leviticus for sins of, of ignorance. Like you committed a sin you didn't even recognize because like a positive law. So God says, don't do this with your ox. Like don't take it and let it be unroped, you know, not roped up here, what have you. You go, oh no, I didn't do that. And then he says, like people might commit that kind of sin and it's a sin of ignorance. It's still wrong. It's still harmful to the community. They still need to be corrected. But that's not the same thing as a high-handed sin. Like you knew the thing was wrong and you just willingly did it anyway. You guys understand the distinction? Um, okay, rebelliously, unrepentantly did it. That's high-handed sin. Um, and, and what he's saying is, I've not denied the words of the Holy One. He's going to come after his blamelessness. I've, always, I've been a man without hypocrisy. If I sin, I repent. What, what is Job doing at the beginning of the book? It's going before the Lord, praying, offering sacrifices. Right? He's, I'm a man who knows my need of the Lord, who worships the Lord, who follows his word, who repents of my sin, who offers sacrifices on behalf of myself and my kids, assuming maybe they sinned somewhere. 
Do you guys follow what I'm getting at here? Not, he's a man of, he's not contending. I'm a man without sin. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't mean he's holy and undefiled, you know, innocent, holy, undefiled like Jesus, right? Without any kind of stain. He means he's without hypocrisy. I've kept God's word. I've followed him. Every time I've needed to step it up, I've stepped it up, right? Like I've repented where I need to repent. Um, okay. So he'll go on. Look at, look at 9.3. 9.3. He's going to say this. He wants to contend. He, he does ask. Look at verse 2 first. Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? In other words, in some sense, there's no way you can be in the right before God, but he thinks he's in the right before God in this case. So he says, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. You guys get what he's getting at here? I mean, in, in, the, in the macro sense, there's no way I can stand before God. In the, in the whole, no way I can stand before God and contend with him. That's not really what he's asking to do. He's not ultimately saying, I'm going to stand before God and explain all his ways to him and correct him on error or something. That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is, I want to contend with him with regard to the fact that my particular situation, I want, it, I want to be vindicated that I, I didn't, this wasn't brought about because of some wickedness in me, this particular. Okay, so look at verse 15. He's going to say this. Well, look at verse 14 first. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser or my judge, speaking about God. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds, notice the language, without cause. He will not let my, me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Okay, so you're getting what's happening here, I hope. His point is not, I'm blameless and, and, and without sin and holy in all things my whole life. If I stood before God and tried to contend with him, he's mighty, I'm not. He's just. He would find, no matter how innocent I am in this case, he'd find me perverse in some, in some way. You guys follow? Like, his point isn't, I can stand before God and be vindicated as holy and righteous. I, he's, I, I can stand before God, though, and be vindicated on this one thing, right? So he's, his scope is narrower than sometimes we read him as being. When he says, I'm blameless, etc. He's, he's, he's not saying, I'm holy in every way. He's saying, I've been a man without hypocrisy following the Lord, and I didn't deserve this particular suffering. And by the way, on that note, is he right? Sure he is. Sure he is. Um, we know that because God says he is in the text. All right, look at down at verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. In other words, he's recognizing in that sense, I, I want to come to trial before God and present my case, plead my cause and demonstrate my blamelessness 
but he's not a man. So I'm not expecting that God is going to um, let me, if you will, cross-examine him. You, you, you guys understand that? I, I'm not expecting he's going to let us come to, to, um, to trial together. Now, will God come to some kind of trial with Job? I'm sure he will. Um, will Job get a chance in that trial to present his case? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting there. All right. Um, look at chapter 10. We'll continue to show you this. He believes his case must be presented before the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 2. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. He's speaking to um, his friends. Then he says, I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. All right, so you can see his appraisal of them. Verse 18 Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Um, look at chapter 16. Chapter 16. Just to give you a couple, a little bit more of this. It sort of runs through chapter 16. And, and look down at verse 16. My face is red with weeping. And on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Right? Like, so he, he has a, an appraisal of himself um, that, you know, I've been walking in godliness. I haven't been violent. I haven't been sinning in some way. Um, my prayer has been pure. All right, look at chapter 23. Chapter 23 of Job, verse 4 through 7. This, this chapter, he actually has the most of this, but I'll just pick a couple selections. Verse 4 through 7. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever before my judge. Or by my judge. Now go down to verse um, 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Um, That's fascinating. What's Job saying about himself? I've been a godly man. I have a lot of arguments ready to, that I want to present to the Lord. And if he came before me and tried me, um, he would hear them out. I'd be tried. I'd come out as gold. What, is that, what does that mean? I'd come out as gold. Huh? 
Yeah, he's just saying I'm innocent. I'm blameless. If I was tried in the fire, there wouldn't be impurity found with regard to my case. Not with regard to everything in his life, but with regard to his case. You guys understand the distinction there? It's, th- there, is some, there is some error in Job's way, by the way, which we'll get to when God replies to him. Because he's like, you know, gird up your loins, right? Brace yourself like a man for, for you know, I'll speak to you and you'll listen to me, Right? And you get the sense that um, as much as Job talks about God being almighty and holy, you get the sense that Job almost underestimated a bit or something. It's, it's, it's an interesting tension. Um, so we'll, we'll look at that later, though. But look at, look at um, Job's next point. Job believes that, so Job believes death would be better than suffering. Job believes that he should be able to present the case of his integrity before the Lord. I've been one of integrity. I've been blameless. I've kept your words. I haven't committed violence. I've been a godly man. I didn't deserve this. Um, and, and he wants to present that. He doesn't believe that case is going to happen. But third, Job believes God's ways are not as mechanical as his friends contend. He thinks his friends are contending for a kind of mechanical understanding of God, which we talked about last week. But I want you to see that Job thinks that's nonsense. Look at Job 12. Job 12. By mechanical, you guys understand what I mean by that. I put in good works, I get out rewards. I put in evil works, I get out punishment. You guys follow how that goes? Okay. That's essentially his friend's contention. God is like, you know, a genie, right? You just rub his belly enough and you get what you want. You tick him off and you get some wrath, right? It's like, it's just, he's, well to use contemporary language, he's like Santa Claus, right? What does Santa Claus do? He gives good children to, gives good children gifts. And he gives bad children lumps of coal, right? Yes, sir? Part of it is like when, did this man sin or did his parents sin? There's only two options. Yep, John 9, yeah. And, And the idea being that it isn't that, I think the reason what you're saying just a moment ago about Job's going to get confronted by God and he's going to be shut up because it, it's God still has a right because he's just clay. He's just that's exactly right. And that's what really I think what God's getting at him there. But in this sense, it's not just they couldn't see any other way that he would suffer except for having sin. That's right. It's the same problem. I that's exactly the same problem as John 9. I think somebody brought that up last week, actually. Didn't, didn't one of you bring, guys bring it up last week? That this is the same thing. So they've basically um, taken God's justice as the Pharisees did. If you're good, you get good things. And if you have bad things, you must have been bad. Right? They just take it that way. You must have sinned. Um, and, and there's something true in it. What's the true thing? God... God does reward godliness. And God does punish sin. Those principles are true, right? The whole gospel makes no sense if that's not true, right? Um, That's the reason you have to have a perfect, holy, righteous um, God-man save you and be punished on a cross, Right? He has to fulfill all righteousness and he has to be punished in your place. That's, that's the whole reason for that. Um, 
but they've, they've become like Pharisees with it. They don't imagine God could be up to anything else and that he has a right to be up to something else. So look at Job 12 and verse 2. Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Why does not, uh, or excuse me, who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughing stock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Okay, so what's he getting at here? It's very simple. Like, uh, you're making this argument, but guys, I've been godly. What does he say about himself? I'm a blameless man, and I'm a laughingstock. My, my whole life has fallen apart, and I'm blameless. But there are wicked men, wicked men, who are at peace, who are secure. They, these are men who, who bring their God in their hand. That's a, it's a great language. What's he getting at there? Idols. They carry their gods around like, this is my God, you know? And he's like, they're doing great. And look at me. I'm suffering. So um, I'm not an idolater. I'm not a, a robber. And yet here I am suffering. I'm a godly man and people are mocking me. So your, your math is wrong. The godly can suffer and the wicked can prosper. Right? Your math is wrong. That's what he's getting at. Look at, look, go over to chapter, or look down at verse 13 while we're there. Chapter 12, verse 13. With God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. Um, he, he, he does it. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. It just He's just saying, God, God does what he pleases. Um, he has wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. You don't. Essentially what he's saying to his friends. Um, go over to chapter 21, Job 21. He's going to again show his friends that the wicked, wicked do prosper. He's going to contend that they do. Um, because their contention is, you're not prospering because, because of sin. Um, and, and he's saying, no, the, the wicked do prosper. Right, so Job 21. Then Job answered and said, keep listening to my words and let, me, let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I've spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. By the way, just as a quick thing, note, the, the wicked live, they reach old age, they grow mighty in power, their offspring are established in their presence. Their descendants before their eyes. He's comparing himself to them. My children have all been cut off. But these wicked men still have all their kids. 
Their houses are safe from fear. Remember, his houses have been torn down. Their bulls, their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. I suppose if you don't, if you're not a rancher, you don't understand how great that would be. Um, they send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and to the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. So the wicked, the wicked have, like their kids are dancing and joyous and happy and they're spending their days in prosperity and uh, their ranching business is crushing it and their house is safe and they see their children grow and they go to old age and they die in peace. Right? Um, so you're, he, he's essentially saying your mechanical view is garbage. Wicked people do prosper. Now, Asaph will come after this as well in Psalm 73, won't he? He's just asking, why do the wicked prosper? Right? Um, as for me, you guys remember that? My feet had almost slipped. Because I'm looking over at the prosperity of the wicked thinking, what in the world? Right? They're, they're prospering and my life sucks. <laughs> What's going on? Right? And, um, okay, so he's saying that this happens. You're, you're incorrect. Look down at verse 24. Down at verse 24. Um, no, I'm sorry. I don't, I'm looking to chapter 24. Look at chapter 24. Yeah, the milk pail. Yeah. Um, chapter 24. Why, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. In, in, in other words, look at how the wicked are treating the poor and the widow. And, and the poor, in this case, here are having to glean a vineyard of what kind of man? A wicked man. So who's the wealthy man who has all this stuff? This wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They just, they just steal people's children and people's stuff, right? They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the wine press but suffer thirst. In other words, they're the ones doing the work, but they don't get to drink the fruits of it. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. In other words, why isn't God's time for justice here? Where, where is it? If God's justice always comes against the wicked like you guys say, why is this happening? There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquitted with his way, acquainted with his ways, and do not stay in the paths. The murderer rises before its light, that he may kill the poor and needy, and the night he is like a thief. The eye of the, adult, of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark, they dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light, for deep darkness is morning to all of them. For they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. Uh, these, are, these, are, these are like the men of ultimate uh, 
chaos, if you will. If you come back to what we've been talking about in Genesis, these are the men of chaos. They, 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 they stay away from the light. They, they've, it's, it's a picture of decreation in them, morally. They've become morally degenerate, right? Um, so that they just, they, they, they stay inside all day and they come out at night and do their stuff and that God's justice isn't dropping on them. Um, what's up with that? Clearly God's justice isn't as mechanical as you think it is. Now Job does not contend just God's justice isn't eventually coming. He means right now. This notion that you have that if I'm godly and repentant, my life will be prosper- prosperous right now, or that if I'm wicked, my life will be, ju- will be suffering and justice right now, you're wrong. That's what he's essentially saying. You're incorrect. Um, okay, so Job believes further in the midst of suffering that God is yet his hope. So this is an amazing thing. God is my enemy. He actually describes God as his enemy at points. Do you guys know that? He's encompassed me. He's hedged me in. He's filling me with arrows. He, he, he's become like an enemy to me. He just crushes me all around. He's relentlessly on me. He won't let me catch my breath or even have a chance to swallow my spit. You guys imagine how bad it is when it's like that, right? And, and yet, he's my hope, right? I wonder where his justice is. I wonder if he'll ever answer and vindicate me, but he's my hope. He's going to say that. Look at Job 13 again. Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. (laughs) Um, Though he slay me, I I will hope in him. There's a textual issue there about translation. Um, some translators say, behold, he will slay me. I have no hope that he may cease. Um, but I think the better translation is, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Which drink, brings us back to chapter um, one. Remember that? Um, though he slay me, in him will I trust. You guys remember that? Okay. Um, go, go as well to more, more expressly, move to Job 19. Um, Job 19. And look at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Right? He's he's speaking to his friends there. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I cry for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree." He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. By the way, we know that enemy nations did come in and take his stuff. You guys remember that? Um, He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. 
I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives, no answer, gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. And this is just basically a, an idiomatic way of saying um, his, he has horrible breath. His wife doesn't want to get near him. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. The children of his own mother, his, his siblings, right? I'm a stench to them. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. You could, you, you, this is like tremendous suffering. When you're walking about town, your own wife, your own siblings won't have anything to do with you. Your close friends will have nothing to do with you. And the children are gawking and talking badly about you. Even the children. Um, all the people that you've loved and cared for abhor you. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Like you're not merciful, being merciful to me. Don't you see what's happened in my life? There's no mercy coming from you. You're just going to condemn me. It goes on, verse 22. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Now, listen, he's just been expressing grief like nobody's business, right? Here's my grief. Here's my suffering. Now, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Wow, what a, like, like if you talk about a relief against a black background, like this bright, um, colorful picture against the black background. I'm in grief, I'm in suffering. But I know my Redeemer lives. Isn't it incredible, Chad, that, that Job doesn't have the book of Job? Jo- yep, he doesn't. The book of Job, which says, okay, Satan, God let him do this. It's all this cosmic, right, bigger picture. Job doesn't have that, and yet he can say this. Yep, he does not have the cosmic picture. He doesn't know what we know. And yet here he is saying this. He's at the end of himself. He's at the very bottom. And he's not cursing God. He's not cursing God. He's saying, you know, as, le- as low as he's been laid, my Redeemer lives. And, and at the last day, he shall stand upon the earth. And he says, I'm going to see him in my flesh. What's he talking about? Yeah, the incarnation and the resurrection. He's talking about resurrection. When people say the Old Testament doesn't talk about that, it's not true. It talks about it in Job. It talks about it in Isaiah. It talks about it in Daniel. Right? There is a coming resurrection the Redeemer's bringing. And he's going to stand in his flesh and see him. That's what he's saying. Um, so there, there, there is, if you will, a fording of the story in Job in as much as you're learning about a coming um, resurrection, a coming Redeemer. You, you've learned about that already, though, by the time you got to Job. In the order of the Hebrew canon, you've learned about that in Isaiah already but it's being pressed in a bit more 
arguably in some of the Psalms, particularly something like Psalm 16, you, you see an argument for that. Um, you know, the, he will not let his Holy One see corruption. You guys remember that, which is picked up in Acts 2 as being talked about as the resurrection um, of Christ. Could be about David, must be about Christ because David's still in his grave and Christ is resurrected. So Psalm 16, Isaiah, here, there's some hope in a redeemer who will resurrect him. So Job's hope is not in this life. Job's hope is in the resurrection, the life to come. I think it's incredibly important that we understand that. Job doesn't think, if I can stand before God and contend for my innocence, when it's all said and done, God will say, oh yeah, you're completely right. Let me give you all that stuff back. That's not his hope. His point isn't, um, if I could contend with God, then I would get the mechanical reward you all promise. It's not his point, right? Um, his point is, uh, in the end, God will resurrect me. My Redeemer lives. I'll see him. I'll see him in my flesh, right? Um, so it, it's a fairly powerful point, and I think it's important for us to recognize it's important for us to recognize um, that Job is heavenly minded. He's not focused on the here and now. That does not mean, however, that he's not really struggling with what's happening to him in the here and now. He clearly is. He's written poems about it and how bad it is, right? Um, so we need to distinguish, like, you know, between. Someone suffering and recognizing how horrible their suffering is. And, and then saying, because they're suffering, they have no hope. Right? Because they're grieving, they have no hope. We're supposed to grieve as those with hope. That's the point, why, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he talks about the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, he, he brackets that passage with, comfort one another with these words. You're grieving as those with hope. It's not, don't grieve at all. Right? It's, when you're grieving, you grieve as ones with hope. Not hope that everything will get better in this life, but hope that you'll stand before God in the resurrection. Yes, sir. Nope. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what suffering does in the hearts of those who are regenerate. I, I, I want to say that. We have this misnomer that suffering, um, bringing people to the end of themselves, or just get him to the bottom, then he'll look to the Lord. You guys heard that stuff? If he just hits rock bottom, then he'll look to the Lord. No, no. That's not how that works. You don't hit rock bottom and then suddenly have a godly heart right? It's, it's when God regenerates your heart that you look to the Lord, right? When he gives you new life. 
Hitting the bottom, if you're wicked, will just, um, will just lead to more hard-heartedness, not godliness. Pharaoh is a great example of that, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it just hardens your heart. It doesn't soften it. it suffering is not, um, like, it's not like well, everybody who suffers is now virtuous as a result of their suffering. In fact, turn on the news and listen to lots of people who suffered in history talk about why they're bitter at, about, at everybody because they suffered. You guys ever notice that? Like suffering just made me bitter toward everybody, right? Um, and, and one of the things you can't do now is you can't say to somebody, hey, you're out of line if they, if they, say for, if they pull the suffering card. I've had a hard time. Yeah, but what you're saying is untrue. Well, now you're just, a, you're just gathered a, as, as part of the company of oppressors that's made life hard for that person, right? That's, that's where a whole societal moment is. Oh, yeah. Yes, his believing people repent. Regenerate people repent. Unregenerate people don't. That's my point. There isn't an automatic relationship between you suffer um, and you will repent. Um, I, I'll tell you this. I've pastored long enough. I heard this from actually Milt Cole way back in the day. But I've pro- pastored long enough to be at enough deathbeds now to say generally, and Milt said it, and I think it's generally true, generally people die the way they lived. Um, which means... Um, you don't see, you, you, you hope to go in at their deathbed and see the best of them. You generally don't. You generally see the worst of them. And if they love the Lord, you see things that shake you about your, the weakness of your own faith. You think, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, I wish I believed like this, right? Um, so you, you, you see, it's not like, oh, they're in a hard time and now they're gonna finally turn to the Lord. That we, that's, it's just not, you guys understand, it's not a math equation. The spirit moves where he wills. Um, suffering will cause a regenerate person to do what Job does. Right? Um, suffering will cause an unregenerate person to curse God and die. That's just the fact. So, um, all right, jo- Job 27 Job believes the wicked will receive their recompense. I just want to show you that. So it's not, when Job says, look at how the wicked prosper, it doesn't, he doesn't mean they'll never receive justice. He just means they won't necessarily receive justice in this life. You guys follow the distinction there? Okay. Um, that's what Psalm 73 gets at. Asaph finally realizes, hey, they might be prosperous now, but judgment's coming. Right? Asaph realizes that. Um, this is the same thing with Job. Look at Job 27, verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God, and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. And his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, um, the pestilence buries. And his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. Um, and he's just going to go in and say his house is going to be eaten by moths and terrors are going over, to overtake him by a flood. In other words, judgment is coming for them. Judgment's coming for them. Um, now, when, when he says that, that um, the innocent will divide the silver, it does give you a tip back to the Exodus. 
right? Where, where here come the Israelites out of Egypt with all their treasures. Uh, they sort of plunder the, Egyptian on the Egyptians on the way out. And it seems to be picking up that kind of language. Um, th- th- there's, a, there's a coming judgment. Um, finally, Job believes wisdom will only be found in the fear of the Lord. Look at Job 28 and look at verse 20. Because he's going to ask this, you guys think you're wise. Where does wisdom come from? Okay, verse 20 of Job 28. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Even, like, even death is like, I heard a rumor about uh, wisdom, right? And others, so nobody knows where it comes from in that sense. God understands the way to it. He, and he knows its place. For he looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he sought and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, yeah, this sounds a lot like Proverbs, doesn't it? Uh, this is, you know, getting you to Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Um, turning away from evil is understanding, right? Uh, that, that's, that's what it is. If you want to be wise, you fear the Lord. You listen to his word. You turn from sin. You obey his law. You trust him, right? Um, all right. Job's final defense. I... I'm not going to get into this chapter in too much detail, uh, but I, I do want you to notice how Job basically presents his final case in three chapters. Um, really, he's saying in chapter 29, this was, this was my life before this suffering started. This is my life before the suffering started. In chapter 30, he's saying, this is my status now. My status before this suffering started, chapter 30, here's my status now under the hand of the Lord, under his suffering. And then he, then he makes a final statement of his own righteousness. Like, and he, doesn't, he means his righteousness in this instance. Okay? In the sense that he's a blameless man who didn't deserve this. Um, so, so let's just look at a, a little bit of it. Chapter 29. And again, Job took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness I, as I was in my prime, uh, he says his prime, like the top days, his autumn days is the language. When the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rocks poured out for, str- for me streams of oil. In other words, everything was like smooth for him, right? Life was smooth. My steps, my steps were washed with butter, Right? It's just smooth. Even the rocks where oil was pouring out of them. Like life was just, God was my friend. His kindness was upon me. Right? When I went out of the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. And the aged rose and stood. In other words, the young men were like, we need to not be in this scene. We, we don't, we're, in a sense, we're not worthy to be in the presence of this godly man. And the aged Older men than him would, would rise and stand. Now, culturally, he would have risen and stood for the older people. 
but here they're rising and standing for him. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. Heard it, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Like, like here's what I was like. People just, that is a blessed man. That's a godly man. I walked through the city and I was recognized by all. Notice the, because you guys remember, he's talking about how now I walk around and even the children mock, right? Essentially. So he's just, man have things changed, right? He goes on to say, um, verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. He, he also talks about how I delivered the poor who cried for help. I, I helped the fatherless who had none to help him. Um, I, I helped a widow when someone, when someone perished. I caused the widow to sing for joy. In other words, I was helping the poor and the fatherless and the widow. Um, I was a righteous man. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I was seeking justice for others. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. You guys, you guys hear what he's saying about himself? Verse 21 of chapter 29. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. This is, this is you guys, have you guys been around a, a, a man who's reached that point in godliness where once he speaks, it's like, okay, we're all done talking now. You ever had, uh, I, uh, this is what it's like when I'm, every, every time Ian Hamilton FaceTimes me, this is what it's like. We're talking, he speaks, he says something, and I think, well, have a good day. <laughs> I don't know what else to say now because <laughs> I feel like a small person. Yeah. 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 And there are men like that. You, you, you get around them and you think, that, or, or old, older women too, you get around them and you think, this is a person who walks with the Lord. Like, I just was with someone who's with the Lord. Um, and it's, it's, it's remarkable kind of godliness and wisdom by God's grace that they have. And Job had that. Job had that. That's where he was. Job's point isn't he was, he was perfect, Right? His point is, God had blessed him in such a way that he was this kind of man. Um, now look at verse thir- or chapter 30, verse 1, how things changed. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Like they weren't even worthy to be with my dogs, their dads, these young boys. And yet they laugh at me. What, cloud, what, well, excuse me, what could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone, through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick stalwart and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as a thief. In the gullies of the torrents, they must dwell in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes, they bray and under the nettles, they huddle together. A senseless, a nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. Right? I mean, that's a pretty bad status for those guys to be in. But look. And now I've become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. 
On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned on me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity is passed away like a, cro- like a cloud. Drop down to verse 20. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. Verse 25, did I not weep? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. You you guys see the turn of events for him? I was righteous and all was well. God had blessed me graciously, been kind to me. And now now the tables have completely turned. I'm at the bottom. Um, And so he appeals. He wants to say, look at how godly I've been. Look at chapter 31. Uh, uh, I've been been a godly man. I have made a covenant, verse 1, with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Um, In other words, what his point is there is he's not saying, I made a covenant with my eyes so that I will not gaze at a virgin. What he's saying is, I made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? His point is, um, this is how I've lived. I've not been a man who's, you know, who's... um, longing for other women. I'm not a violator of the seventh commandment. I'm not looking at pornography. I'm not looking at other women and lusting. I'm not trying to pursue other women. I've been a godly man with regard to sexual purity. My eyes have only been for my wife. That's what he's saying, right? Um, He goes on, verse five, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance, then let God know my integrity. In other words, I haven't walked in falsehood. Verse 7, it, or that was verse 5. Verse 7, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. In other words, I've never, I've never pursued another woman. I've never, wa- you know, with, even with my eyes or lusts, I've never walked in falsehood. I haven't stepped, I haven't turned aside from the way. Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman... And I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, right? In other words, I've, I've not pursued that. This is going to come up in Proverbs 5, you know, sort of pursuing another woman. Verse 13, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, he's basically saying I never have. Verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or caused, have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, um, he's just basically saying, or, you know, you look at verse 17, and the fatherless have not eaten of it. If I've eaten the morsel alone and the fatherless haven't, in other words, I've taken care of the widow, I've taken care of the orphan, I've taken care of my servants, I've been dedicated to my wife, I haven't been a liar or a cheat. You guys follow what he's saying? I've been a generally godly man. Verse 19, if I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, in other words, I've taken care of those who need clothing. If I've raised my hand against the fatherless, like I've never mistreated the orphans, I've helped them. Look at verse 24. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, 
If I have rejected because, if I have reject, or excuse me, rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because I had found much. And the thing, look, I don't even find my joy in having, I haven't even found my joy in having a lot of money. Gold is not my, not my confidence. I, in, in other words, I haven't found my trust, I haven't put my trust in riches, right? I haven't put, I haven't pursued other women. I haven't been unkind to the widow or the orphan or my servants. I haven't cheated anybody. I haven't wandered from the path. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. It's interesting. He, he even says, I haven't rejoiced at the ruin of my enemies. In other words, he's even contending for the fact that he's loved his enemies. Like usually if somebody's persecuting you or treating you badly and they go down, you're like, yeah, they finally, you know, vindication, baby. He's like, I haven't rejoiced at it. Um, it, you, you guys get what he's saying. Look at the end of chapter 31. The words of Job are ended. The words of Job are ended. That's the last time he speaks before he's put on trial, if you will, with God. Um, Elijah will speak and God will speak and we'll look at their speeches next, uh, well, not next Friday. Next Friday we do not meet because I will be um, at the Radius Retreat um, for the Radius Board and Staff Retreat. I guess Joel and I will be there, right? So, um, so we'll be there. We'll, I'll be gone next Friday uh, with Radius Board and Staff, but then the Friday after that, we'll pick up Job's. So what's, what's the Friday after that? What's that date? The 22nd? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we'll meet on Friday the 22nd, and we'll look at Elihu and God's speeches. So we'll look at that. That'll be the last one um, that we'll look at is the speeches of Elihu and then God, um, concluding the book of Job. Any, any questions before I pray? Nope. Okay. All right. So... Uh, you guys know what comes after Job? Proverbs. And, and I, I, I don't think that's um, by mistake that in the Hebrew order of the canon, the original Old Testament order of the canon, Proverbs comes after Job. If you don't read Job, you're going to misunderstand Proverbs. And if you don't read Proverbs, you might misunderstand Job. These books really help you round out your sense of what wisdom is. Now, we also will have uh, two other books in wisdom, at least, trying to think about that. So, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Oeth, and Lamentations. So, a few more. So, um, we'll look at those. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful um, for these men and the privilege of being in your word together with them. We pray um, that you would help us to be godly blameless men as Job was, that you would help us to know that our Redeemer lives to look to him, to look forward to the resurrection, um, to trust you, um, that if you, if you bless us um, it's, and prosper us, it's from your hand to be thankful and generous, and not to trust in riches, but in God. Um, help us to know that if suffering comes, it is from you, um, and to trust you either way, for what you are doing, whether we understand it or not, that we would look to Christ and grow in godliness, that he would be our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.